Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. We are continuing our series entitled Darkness to Light, in which we are looking at the life of the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts. And in the first two weeks, we saw Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and then we witnessed last week the beginning of his preaching ministry with great boldness and power. And we left him in chapter 9, where Saul was still uh, known by that name, and he had escaped from Damascus and Jerusalem, running for his very life. And he returned to his hometown of Tarsus, and scholars tell us that he remained there approximately for a decade. And we have no record of his activities, though we are pretty certain he was spreading the gospel there in his hometown uh, because that was his calling and passion. But we pick him up again in Acts chapter 11 after he's been away from the activity of the early church with the apostles for about 10 years. So look with me please in Acts chapter 11 verses 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. Now I take that clip from uh, Acts chapter 11 not only because it records the return uh, of Saul or Paul as he would become known by that, his Greek name, uh, but because he came to Antioch. And the church at Antioch would become a strategic church. It would become a springboard, if you will, for the gospel to be spread throughout the world of the first century. And the church at Antioch was the very first church to witness the gospel to Gentiles or non-Jews in their own home area. And they were also, more significantly for our subject matter today, they were the first church to send missionaries to other parts of the world, a practice that continues to this very day. So, Acts chapter 13 will find Saul back in the center of the expansion of the early church. It will find him about to embark on the first of what would eventually be three missionary journeys where Paul and those who worked with him would plant churches and nurture new believers and spread the gospel throughout the world of their day. God was about to call him to do something, not something that was difficult, something that was impossible, something that could only be accomplished by supernatural Means And by the way, that's an important principle for you and for me as Christ followers. That if we're going to do something significant for God, if we're going to be His ambassadors, if we're going to be His missionaries, if we're going to be evangelists of the gospel as we are all called to be, we cannot do that in our own strength. We must have supernatural means. We must have the presence and power 
of the Holy Spirit. And that's our main theme for today's message. It's our big idea, which we have in every message here at Magnolia's First, the sermon in a sentence, and today it's this. We must have God's power to do God's work. And so let's see how that played out in the life of Paul. Acts 13, beginning with verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaen, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. Now, this group of leaders in the early church at Antioch are called prophets and teachers. Now, that doesn't mean there was two distinct and different groups. Uh, More likely it means most, if not all of them, had both of these spiritual gifts. The The gift of prophecy, which means they could sense from God what God was wanting to say to his people, and they became God's voices to the people of the church at Antioch. And then teachers, they were given the gift of teaching, and they were able to teach them about Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom of God. And so this group of leaders, prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch, becomes strategic in this monumental first step of missionary endeavor. And we find in the next verse that God speaks to them By the Holy Spirit, we don't know exactly how he spoke. Perhaps it was just an impression upon uh, the hearts of some or all of them. But it's very clear they knew what God was saying. They knew who God was talking about and what God was calling them to do. Look at verse 2. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. Now, I think it's true that the the modern church of today, to its detriment, does not talk about the call of God upon people's lives as much as it did, at least in the years that I was growing up. That was something common that we would hear, that God would call people. He would call people to be pastors. He'd call people to be missionaries. He would call people to be evangelists. He would call them for specific roles and specific works in the kingdom of God. I remember that in my own life. I was 14 years old. I'd become a a Christian, a Christ follower at the young age of eight at the North Central Baptist Church in Northeast Houston. I lived next door to the parsonage, so I got to know the pastors and their families very well. And uh, one of the pastors was a man named Jack Smith wonderful communicator of the gospel, and he took an interest in me. And the years that we lived next door to each other uh, was a time of, of spiritual growth for me. But he accepted a call to another church, the First Baptist Church in Grosbeck, Texas. Any of you know where Grosbeck is? Uh, a few of you. It's not a large town, but it had a wonderful church there. And he left our church in Houston, went there, and he invited me to come and to visit him and his family. And the week that he invited me, they just happened to be having a revival meeting. One of those holy coincidences. And while I was there visiting with 
Pastor Jack and his family. We had some conversations about what God might want to do with my life and my future. And I'll never forget that night at the revival meeting uh, in the same way really that the Holy Spirit spoke to those early church fathers. I felt him speak to me, that he was calling me to give my life to ministry. And I'll never forget, I wrote in the flyleaf of my old King James Bible, I thank God that he's called me to be a pastor. And I didn't know that the first 20 years of my pastoral ministry, uh, I would be a worship pastor, uh, doing pretty much what Pastor Steve does here, but back in the days when uh, you led a choir and, and uh, there was just a piano and organ, my wife tells me I date myself all the time by telling these things. But for the first 20 years, that was my ministry. And 20 years after I began that ministry at age 17, God put another call on my life to take me a new direction at the age of 37 to leave the, the worship ministry and become a teaching pastor, a, a shepherding pastor. And I went home and told my wife, and I knew she was going to be thrilled and excited. She wasn't. But God made it clear. And a year later, we left the First Baptist Church in Humble, which was my last worship pastor, a church that had 60 in the choir, and we went to a mission church where there were 26, and six of them were us. And for another two and a half years, God took me to pastoral ministry boot camp, and then he led me here. And so for 31 years, we have served together, all because God put a call on the heart and life of an unworthy sinner like me. And God still does that. He calls people. He calls people sometimes to leave what is comfortable and familiar and secure, to do a new work and follow a new ministry calling. That's happened in our church in recent days. Pastor Jesse Hardy and his wife Rachel and their family received a call from God, very clear, very specific, to leave this church where he has served for 20 years on the pastoral staff and to go and work with our North American Mission Board and the New Mexico Baptist Convention to the town of Cuesta, New Mexico. I had never even heard of Cuesta, New Mexico, but God called them there. And they are preparing to launch out, and I'll talk more about that a little later in the message. Here's what I want us to understand from those two stories. God calls all of us, if we're Christ followers, to be His witnesses, but He calls some to become missionary evangelists with specific callings in specific places. That's what He did with Saul and Barnabas. He called them, and they and their church, the church at Antioch, responded in obedience. Verse 3, So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. You see, when God calls some to a specific missionary assignment, the church is supposed to endorse them. The church is supposed to support them. And that's what this verse says. It says that those leaders of the church laid their hands on them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a service. Uh, we still do that today. 
Uh, if we ordain deacons in our church, at the end of that ordination service, the other deacons come by and they lay hands upon them and they pray for them and pray over them. If we ordain a, a pastor to, to assume a pastoral ministry role, we will ordain them and lay hands on them. If someone's called to be a missionary from the church, we will lay hands on them. Uh, on September the 12th, which will be Pastor Jesse's last official Sunday on our pastoral staff, uh, we're going to recognize and pray over them in all of the mornings. And then that evening, September 12th, 6 o'clock, in the venue, we're going to have uh, a commissioning service. We're going to worship together. Our Resonate worship team will be leading in that. And as a part of that service, some of the elders of our church are going to lay hands on them and pray over them. And we're going to do what is talked about here about Saul and Barnabas in verse 3. Send them on their way. Now what does that mean? Does it mean you wave bye-bye and say, God bless you, I hope it works out well? No. It means that we support them, that we commit to pray for them regularly, that we support with financial resources the work that they are called to do. Because what we're talking about is not just a good idea somebody came up with. It's a call from God that obedient servants are responding to. Now, let me make it clear, uh, though we're we're focusing on the Hardys because we're about to send them off and to support this new work in New Mexico. They're not the only ones connected to our church who have answered the call from God to be missionaries. Let me tell you about a few of them. Scott and Sandra George, who are a part of our church, are missionaries with our Southern Baptist International Mission Board serving in Brazil. Rita Salter, who is a part of the, the Beach family, uh, she is related to, to, to Chris, who plays bass guitar in our worship band here, part of that family. And she serves with our International Mission Board in Africa. Jeff and Lori Loomis and their parents are part of our church. Jeff's dad is a deacon in our church. They too are with our IMB serving in Japan. Nick and Bethany Cope, Bethany is the daughter of Willie and Tana Hayes, Sunday school teachers here. They're serving with reliant missionary enterprises in the difficult setting of Lebanon. Ryan and Jenny Elif, who grew up in our church, they have been serving for the last few years with the Assembly of God World Mission Team in Russia. And there are a number of others that have heard the call of God to go on short-term missionary expeditions with International Commission or East to West or other. And I'm sure there are missionaries that, that I didn't think of or may have forgotten. And forgive me if you know of someone that, that's a part of our church. But I say all that to say there are people in this church just like the church at Antioch that have heard the call of God and responded to go. To go as God's missionaries. And that practice started at the church at Antioch, and it has continued to this very day more than 20 centuries later. Let's continue in the narrative, verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit 
They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. Seleucia was the main port for the city of Antioch, kind of like the port of Houston uh, for our area. And Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, was about 60 nautical miles away. It was a strategic place to begin missionary work. It had been under Roman rule since the first century B.C. And this was the place that God had them make their first stop on their first missionary journey. Though Paul would have two later journeys as well. All three of which, and he was establishing churches and nurturing believers. And I just want you to stop and think about what is happening in the passage today. More than 2,000 years of missionary work and church growth all began because Barnabas and Saul were willing to answer God's call. And I want to say again, He is still calling people today. God could be calling somebody who hears this message today. Somebody who who He calls to leave what's comfortable and secure and familiar and safe and go somewhere else to give their life for the cause of the gospel in the kingdom of God. And may I just say, if you know God is calling you, do not turn a deaf ear. And God's call may be to a specific location. It may be to a particular region. Or it may be a traveling or itinerant ministry that impacts numerous areas. Have you ever known anybody like that? I've known several itinerant evangelists through the years. I think of one, a friend named Bob Elliott, uh, who left a pastorate with a a salary and a parsonage and a a familiar group of people that loved him and he taught every week and he left it to become a, a traveling evangelist and he went all over America and literally all over the world. I had the privilege of working a few revival meetings with him. He led the uh, he led in the preaching and I led the, the worship. And in those times that we talked together, he had a deep impact on my life. Wonderful, godly, committed man who lived by faith. When he stepped out into that ministry, he had no idea where his next paycheck was coming from except from God, except from the Lord. And that's what God does. And he did it with Saul and Barnabas. Verse 5, there in the town of Salamis, that is on the Isle of Cyprus, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Now this is the same Mark, by the way, who wrote the gospel account of Mark. It was the earliest of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He went with them on this missionary trip. He would later work with the apostle Peter to do missionary work in the first century. And on this first stop, they began, Paul began, what would become a consistent practice in his missionary work. He went to the synagogue to preach. He followed the example of Jesus. Now why would he do that? That was the Jewish place of worship. It was because that's where people came to talk about spiritual things. 
That's where people came to learn about the truth of God. That's where people came to hear that God would send a Messiah. And so Paul went to the synagogues to preach that the Messiah had come. His name was Jesus. And that He had conquered sin, death, and the grave. And that they needed to trust in Him. And he made connections with people. People who were spiritually seeking there at the synagogues. And by the way, that same practice, that same strategy, not going to the synagogues, but making connections with people to bring them the gospel is what missionaries still do today. When taking the gospel to a new location, the missionaries look for ways to make relational and spiritual connections. I asked Pastor Jesse, though he hasn't moved to Cuesta yet, uh, they won't fully move their uh, their family and their home until the fall. It'll be a uh, kind of a staged process. But I, I know he's made several trips there, and so I asked him, I said, what have you done to try to connect with the people? I was interested to know. And he said, well, several things. He said, uh, one, they, there was a food pantry there that was passing out food to people uh, who were poor, that needed food. So my, my little son Cameron and I went and we helped with the food pantry. And I connected with people. He said, I connected with one lady who needed handyman work done at her home. And that's what Jesse's going to do to try to connect with people and bring in a little bit of income. Uh, he's going to be a, a handyman. He said, so she hired me right there to do handyman work. And we got to talk about the things of the Lord. And he said, when I went back this week, she was reading a Christian book, God is Working on Her Heart. He said, I also went to the Red River garage sale, some big garage sale thing they have there. And he said, I met someone there who had an interest in the things of the Lord, and we formed a, a connection and I'm going to be able to continue that dialogue with them. Somebody else he met walking their dog at a dog park. And he was able to connect with him and talk with him. You see, you just find ways to connect people and to love people and to bring them the gospel. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did from town to town to town. Pick it up with verse 6. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they finally reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, don't miss this, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the Word of God. Now, Paphos was a st strategic place on the Isle of Cyprus. It was about 90 miles west from where they started. But it was strategic because that was the seat, the capital of Roman rule on the island of Cyprus. And it's where the governor, as it's translated here, or the proconsul, another term in other translations, but he was the one in charge of ruling over the entire island on behalf of the Roman government. He was a strategic, influential leader, and he was interested in the gospel. 
And so if this man were to become a believer, it could be a, a, a great movement toward the, the gospel taking root on this island of Cyprus. But you see, when there is a strategic move of God, the enemy is not happy. Let's go to verse 8. And this is the same man mentioned earlier. Here we go, verse 8. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Now here's something you can count on, where the light of the gospel is invading the darkness, the darkness will push back. It will push back, sometimes viciously, because the darkness does not want to release the stronghold that they have their grip on. When doing missionary work, the enemy will not sit idly by. He will oppose God's work, sometimes intensely and powerfully. So I want us to understand the dynamic of what's going on here in the passage. This was spiritual warfare. There was nothing subtle or gentle about it. Paul was facing off with a demonic power, and he was determined, the demonic power was determined not to let the gospel advance by winning the heart of this strategic leader in this area. And let me just say before we continue in the narrative, our missionaries, whether it's in Cuesta, New Mexico, Africa, Japan, Russia, or wherever, our missionaries will face demonic opposition. They will face demonic opposition. And you know what? If we are missionaries where God has planted us, we'll face it too. Now it may not be as dramatic or, or as spectacular as this confrontation, but any time you try to do something for the glory of God, the enemy is not happy about it. And he will come against you. But see how it plays out. Verse 9. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and I like this part, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. <laughs> this was nose to nose. This was a, a mono e mano in the spirit confrontation. Paul was not backing down. He was not afraid. But what he did understand was that he could not go into that battle in his own strength. He knew he needed the Holy Spirit. Here's how that applies to us. If we try to fight a spiritual battle without the Holy Spirit's power, we will be overmatched and overpowered. Just like Paul, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Paul encounters this demonic foot soldier and he lets him have it. He doesn't hold anything back because too much is at stake. See it, verse 10. Then he, Paul, said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Well, he didn't leave any doubt, did he? Now look at this, verse 11. 
Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment on you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. I love this account because Paul didn't just push back, he took him out. He took him out. He stood in the strength of the Spirit. And that encounter left absolutely no doubt the true source of light, strength, truth, and power. It was the Lord Jesus and His gospel. And can I just tell you there's all sorts of demonic movement and influence in our culture today? Have you, have you ever heard anybody recently uh, on the news or just maybe in conversation with somebody who doesn't know the Lord and they'll talk about being spiritual in ways that have nothing to do with Jesus? Have you heard that language? It's common in our culture. Or sorcery or witchcraft. I know of someone who ended up in a work environment with someone who proclaimed to be a witch. And I can tell you there was spiritual warfare going on, and it was intense. That sort of thing, all, all of the, the mystic world and, and sorcery and witchcraft, make no mistake, friends, that is of our enemy. That is of the devil. And that is why we must stand strong in the truth of God's Word and the power of God's Spirit to do spiritual warfare. Because when we do, and like Paul are victorious, here's the outcome. When God's power is victorious through His people, it is a compelling, convincing witness to those who are considering the gospel. See the result, verse 12. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. He became a Christ follower, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Listen, we won't win people to faith in Christ through our intellect or our ingenuity. It will only be through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, let's close the curtain on this episode in Paul's life. We'll come back to a new episode next week. What do we take away from this? What are the applications to our lives? Let me share two or three quickly, and then we're done. First of all, we must remember that we are all missionaries wherever God plants us. Hmm, let's try that again. We are all missionaries wherever God plants us. Good, that's better. God plants us in places that our missionaries may never have the opportunity to go. You have influence in people's lives that I will never touch. I may never even meet. You are God's ambassador, as we looked at in the entire sermon series earlier. You are God's missionary. And whatever else we do in life pales in importance and significance to that call of God on every Christ follower's life. We are to be His missionary wherever He plants us, and to do that, 
we need the Holy Spirit's power. If God doesn't call you to be a missionary in Africa or Japan or Russia or some other place, be a missionary right where you are. Because friends, there are those who don't know the Savior all around us every day. Every day. Here's another takeaway. God calls from among His body people to do specific missionary work for Him. And they need our support. Uh, if, if you'd like to know how to support the, the missions and the missionaries of our church in prayer more effectively, let me encourage you to send an email to Pastor Jeff Williams, our missions pastor, at jeff at m1bc.org. Pretty easy to remember. Jeff, J-E-F-F, at m1bc.org. And he will let you know how to join our missions prayer team. He has a team of people that pray not only for our missionaries uh, all over the world, but for the mission enterprises right here in our own community. Uh, we need to support those who God has called to do mission work. Not just Pastor Jesse and Rachel, though certainly we need to support them, but we need to support all those who do His work. Here's one last application. When God's power is upon God's people, there is nothing we cannot do for Him. The Apostle Paul stared down a demon and came away victorious because he was filled with God's power. And that same power is available to fill us when we go into battle. But be sure... We must have God's power to do God's work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to be missionaries wherever we are. Not to do it in our own talents and abilities and intellect, but to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and guided by the truth of the Word of God. I pray that you would help us to support more faithfully and fully those who answer the call to do missionary work by leaving home and going to other places, sometimes halfway around the world, to take the gospel to people who need Jesus. Help us to be encouragers and supporters of those who, like Paul and Barnabas, answered your call to be your missionaries. We thank you for this truth from the life of the Apostle Paul today. In Jesus' name, amen.